0: Good morning, everybody. (laughs) Good morning. My name is Joel Mooneyhan. I'm on the board of elders here at Atlanta Christian Church. If it's your first time with us, we're happy you're here. Um, Especially happy you're here in this weather with the Masters going on. If Game of Thrones debuted right now, we'd have a different story, I think, from a lot of them. um, Thankfully, it's not. I've never seen Game of Thrones, actually. Everyone thinks I'm lying, but. Kyle showed me the only thing I've ever seen in it. Um, it's okay, I, I don't know. I, dragons and things like that, I don't care. I don't care at all. Um, has anyone ever been to New Orleans? Yes, raise your hand if you have. About oh, well, more of you than I would have thought. Um, what, who, who, what's your favorite part? Ah, burn Be careful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it uh, tame, Bourbon Street, okay. Anybody else? Christmas yes. Music. Music. Christmas quarter. Christmas Core, okay, awesome. Culture. The culture, the, yes. Awesome stuff. I love, I love Cafe Du Monde. Cafe Du Monde. call it knowledge. Yes. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have opened the floor. Um, it's quite a place. Uh, I've been there twice, both times with my oldest and best friend Dave, who's here. Um, actually, Dave and I have been friends since we were 10, and uh, I did his wedding a couple years ago. Um, we went to New Orleans on New Year's Eve, 2013 into 2014, and watched the New Year come in on the banks of the Mississippi, and it was awesome. And then we went there for his uh, bachelor party, and we had a really good time. Um, As somebody who loves the South, loves history, art, and music, New Orleans is a place that really does strike a a deep and resonant chord within me, and it's a place where you can be walking down the sidewalks, and out of the blue, loud and boisterous music just breaks out on the street. Um, We were there one time, and a a drum line just started playing and passing around the bucket for money, Um, and then you keep on walking down the street, and you might turn a corner, and there'll be a gospel choir just singing out on the sidewalk. And you keep on going, and there'll be blues music coming out of a club. And it's like it's a, a living, breathing mixtape playlist where everything just kind of crossfades into something else. Um, it's a mix of cultures. It's a place where history seems like it's at a perpetual crossroads. And just love it. If you haven't been, you should go. The first time we went, I got to witness a funeral march, a jazz funeral. And I've been told by some people that they don't you're not supposed to call it a jazz funeral, but I think that uh, people have loosened up on that a little bit. Um, but it's a tradition that blends practices from Europe, from Africa, uh, from Haiti, a lot of disparate cultures kind of coming together and blending uh, this one eclectic celebration of the life of the deceased. Um, the march into the funeral is with the family and close friends of the person who's died. And they play a dirge going in and then they do the service and then when they come out, the music is loud and boisterous and uh, exciting. And that's when people who are around and just kind of witnessing it are invited to come in. So first they go in and do the ceremony, they say their farewells, they cut loose the body and then they come out and then anybody who's there to witness can kind of join in the parade. Um they typically wave umbrellas and handkerchiefs and you don't even know the person. You're just kind of getting into this party that's going down the street. Uh that's called the second line. The group of people who are strangers to the to the deceased who join the celebration to enjoy the music and maybe learn a little bit about who they were um and just kind of celebrate somebody's life even if you didn't get a chance to know them. Um, it throws away decor. You, know, you go to a lot of funerals, and there's, just, there's a very sense of prim and proper, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at a jazz funeral, there's just, it's just a free-for-all. It's crazy. Um, Bob Dylan talks about New Orleans. Uh, this is a freebie, by the way. I didn't have this in my notes originally. Um, the first thing you notice about New Orleans, he says, are the burying grounds, the cemeteries. And they're a cold proposition, one of the best things there are here. Going by, you try to be as quiet as possible, better to let them sleep. Greek, Roman sepulchres, palatial mausoleums, made to order, phantomesque, signs and symbols of hidden decay, ghosts of women and men who have sinned, who've died, and are now living in tombs. The past doesn't pass away so quickly here. You could be dead a long time. Tom Robbins. In his novel, Jitterbug Jitterbug Perfume, I think nails the character of New Orleans by saying, If New Orleans is not fully in the mainstream of culture, neither is it fully in the mainstream of time. Lacking a well-defined present, it lives somewhere between its past and its future, as if uncertain whether to advance or to retreat. Perhaps it is its perpetual ambivalence that is its secret charm. Somewhere between Preservation Hall and the Superdome, between voodoo and cybernetics, New Orleans listens eagerly to the seductive promises of the future, but keeps at least one foot firmly planted in its history, and in the end conforms, like an artist, not to the world, but to its own inner being, ever mindful of its personal style. We get a similar sense in our reading today that this is where Israel is, during the first part of the first century. It's a nation who's existed for, by this point, about 400 years uh, in the shadow of a bunch of other empires, kind of like a hand-me-down uh, from uh, more powerful and more uh, brutal people than they were. It's a nation and a people who are living in expectation of the future, but who are also very tied to the past and what the past has taught them and where the past has brought them. One foot planted firmly in the past, but their eyes looking forward in expectation and hope and sometimes proclamation of something better in the future to come. And here is where we meet Jesus and his disciples for our reading. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read it one more time. When Jesus had said these things and went on ahead going up to Jerusalem... Uh, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, on the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, uh, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem uh, for Passover. And although his ministry has uh, intersected and circled around Jerusalem before, we learn in this passage and what follows, we keep reading, uh, that he senses the finality of this visit into the city. Even as his followers gather around him and praise him, following him into the city, Jesus has a heavy heart and a troubled mind. He's on a mission. Now we have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. We know what's coming. But right then and there, this is a burden that Jesus has to carry on his own. Um, You can tell a lot about a person's life by the kind of party people throw for them when they die. And you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of things people say about them after they've gone. This is another freebie. Uh, I served a church in Kentucky, and uh, the place where I lived was about an hour away from the church. So to go there in the morning and to come back was pretty exhausting by the end of the day. So I get up one morning, go do the church thing, give my sermon, I come back, I'm getting ready to unwind, and my phone rings, and I notice that it is an area code from the town where the church was. So I thought I need to take it because it could be somebody from the church. So I pick it up, and the guy tells me it's, I forget his name, from the funeral home, and he said, Broadus Peel died, and you need to do the funeral tomorrow. Now, the church I served was small, and it was mostly family, and I knew the name of every single person there, and I've been there for a couple of years by that point, never met Broadus Peel, so they said, you need to come do the funeral, and I said, uh. Do what now? Uh, and Well, he was a member of your church, and his family is going to do the funeral at the funeral home, but they want the pastor of the church to come. I don't know the guy. I've never, I've never seen him before. So I had to go that night, after I was ready to take a nap, drive back out there and meet his family at the funeral home for the visitation and try to learn something about the guy so I could do his funeral and say something nice about him. But all I had to go on was what other people were telling me. It's a really strange thing to do a funeral for somebody you've never met, by the way. Because all you're going on is what everybody else has told you about him, And you don't really know if it's true because no one's going to say anything bad about him at that point. Um, each of the gospel writers go to great lengths to paint a particular portrait of Jesus. For John... It's a picture of a man in whom the very presence of God was embodied. He was fully divine and fully human. For Matthew, it's a picture of uh, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Mark paints a lean and bold and fast-moving, vivid picture of Jesus going from one thing to the other to the other without really stopping. Luke presents Jesus as a king, a king whose mission is peace. Every detail of the account that we're reading here is imbued with with symbolism that denotes royalty, of power. The disciples laying their garments on the ground are effectively rolling out the red carpet for Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Waving palm branches was a sign of reverence for somebody who was thought to be a king. This is the person they viewed as their long-awaited Messiah, the one whom God promised would deliver them. Even the choice of animal is not insignificant. And people have waxed philosophical. I've heard people talk about Jesus riding in on a donkey was a symbol of meekness and humility. And that's true to a point. But the fact is that the very notion he's riding on an animal and not walking tells us something. Somebody who was walking would have been a common person. To ride into a city on an animal meant that you were a person of position and power. And what's more beyond that, this was a clear and conscientious choice that Jesus makes. There's sort of this sense in the reading that maybe there's this sort of omniscience that Jesus knows that there's going to be this donkey somewhere. I don't read it that way simply because we know that there are other disciples that Jesus has that aren't just the 12. Matthew tells us that there are at least 72. And we don't really know what we don't know about the life of Jesus. We have a few pages of a three-decade life seems to me that Jesus had made arrangements beforehand and told his disciples where to go because he had arranged to get this animal. But his arrival still echoes the prophet Zechariah and whether he was doing that on purpose or whether it was some sort of divine foreknowledge. It's not really relevant except for the fact that Jesus coming in on an animal was a choice that he made that would have been understood by those looking on as a statement about who he was. But the animal itself has significance. Because in those days, it was typical for somebody who was coming in and visiting, uh, if they were coming in on a horse, that would have been seen as a message of conquest and might even have been seen as a sign of aggression. But to come in on a donkey was to come in showing that you're coming in on a mission of peace instead of war. And even the disciples proclaim peace as they escort Jesus into the city. This isn't the only time that Luke makes use of the theme of peace in Jesus' mission. When the angels visit the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth, they proclaim God's peace. And there's another interesting parallel. If you lay out the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds during the Nativity, and you lay out the proclamation of the disciples during the triumphal entry, they kind of match each other grammatically, beat for beat. In the Nativity, Luke says that a multitude of the heavenly hosts appear, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When Luke narrates Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, he says that a multitude of disciples gathered, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory to God in the highest. Luke is telling us something here because Luke is writing in retrospect and he knows what's to come. He knows the whole story. He's recording it. And so now he's building into the narrative hints about who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. The angels proclaim peace on earth as Christ is born. The disciples proclaim peace in heaven as Christ goes to the place where he soon will die. What Luke is telling us is that wherever Christ is headed, his mission is one of peace, of reconciliation, of restoring the relationship between God and humanity, and restoring the relationship between us and each other. And in the midst of this celebration, there are some naysayers. Some of the Pharisees, with whom Christ was constantly at odds, tell him to rebuke his disciples. For their brash and insolent display of devotion. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Subtext. <laughs> hey man, this is Passover. And this isn't about you. This is about our history. And where we've been. And about God's salvation of us from bondage in Egypt. And we can't have you and your bunch of rednecks and reprobates and sinners disrupting things so you can have your own private personal party. Tell them to knock it off. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Subtext. Y'all are the ones who need to get with it. You still have no idea who I am, or that I am God, come to save you from bondage to your sin. You do better to forget yourselves and just enjoy the party. And if my followers don't praise me, then God's creation itself will lift its voice to do it. It's quite a scene. It's a celebratory moment with echoes of Christ's past and a sense of foreboding at Christ's immediate future. The writers of the Interpreter's Bible say this. It was a pageant, but it was God's kind. A procession at once splendid and dreary. It was something to rejoice over and something to mourn about, like life itself. See from, the fo- see from the first both the highlights and the shadows. Jesus flicked off like a speck of dust by the decent people who had lionized him for a while. John the Baptist who doubted him. Judas who- whom he could never quite win. The brothers who were quite sure that he was daft. Then remember that this is the man who seems to have thought of himself at last as if he had been sent of God to bring about some vast reversal in human life. And so little had been done. It had begun to look now like the end, yet against the background of that lowly life, going out with such poor pomp had been painted a glory in the skies, God's pageant of the years. Until what else can a man make of him but the strange love of God walking abroad on the earth, forever hurt and despised, and yet forever at the last triumphant. Jesus was right, by the way, about the stones crying out. In a few days, he'll be arrested, he'll be lied about, he'll be turned over to the Roman authorities and he'll be put on trial. He'll be beaten He'll be sentenced to death, and he'll carry a cross to the top of a hill among crowds of scornful onlookers. They'll nail him to that cross, and he'll be hung up to die. And at the moment when he gives up his ghost, the moment when not a single voice can be heard singing his praises, there'll be an earthquake. Indeed, the very rocks will cry out from the earth, and it will be such a moment that one of the soldiers who oversees his execution will be moved to proclaim, Surely this man was the Son of God. The second line of a jazz funeral is the one for the people who didn't get to experience the life of the, uh, the deceased on the earth. It's the people who are invited to celebrate that person's life inspired by the love of the people who knew him the best, the people whose love inspires them to tell stories of them so that everyone they meet every single day will get to know a little bit about the person, who they were, what they were about, what their mission was, and what they mean to them even now. As Christians, we're called to be the second line of Christ's parade. We weren't there in those days. We didn't get to see all these things happen. But we know who Christ was and who Christ is because of what the gospel writers share with us. And because of how people for generations have been moved to tell that story and continue his mission of peace wherever they go. So the question to us is, are we the kind of people who will join the second line? And proclaim Christ in his peace. Or are we the kind of people whose voices fall silent so that the rocks have to do the work of proclamation for us? And this is a battle I fight every day. Um, about the one thing that I, that I try to pray every day. Because you get busy, you get tied up with your schedule and it's early in the morning or it's late at night and you're just trying to get things done. But the one thing I try to pray every day, if nothing else, is Jesus today, may your name be known by me in my heart and through me in the life that I live before others. I don't want the rocks to do that job for me. And if I'm honest, it probably happens more than I'd like. In your chairs today, you each found a small rock. My invitation to you is to take this with you from here into this holy week. You don't have to keep it forever. If you want to, that's cool. But as we approach Easter, that great moment when Christ is resurrected and reverses the very gears of sin and death itself, let this rock be a reminder that, God help us, we have a job to do in proclaiming who he is and what his mission was every day to everybody who we meet. Carry it with you and pray that this rock you carry never has to do the job of proclaiming God's peace because your own voice has fallen silent. We do serve a mighty and wonderful king, one whose mission is peace. And by God's grace, we're invited to be a part of the second line. So let's make sure that we are people who think and speak and live accordingly. And let's make sure that these rocks stay silent.